of Job, Job chapter 38. So if you want to just get that ready, we'll be looking at that. We'll also be looking at 2 Kings chapter 5, if you're someone who likes to keep a finger in one and a finger in the other. But as you're looking that up, let me just explain where we're going. Um, I've been given the title, as you can see on the screen there, Wisdom in the Wondering. I really enjoyed John Bradley's sermon, by the way, a couple of weeks ago, Wisdom in Waiting. I listened to it online, and if you haven't heard it, it's worth a, worth a listen. But today it's Wisdom in Wondering, or Wisdom in the Wondering. And I want to look at that today in, in, in two ways. Firstly, is there wisdom in wondering about stuff? Is it wise to wonder why the world is not as it should be? Is it wise to wonder, why doesn't God sort it out? Is it wise to wonder why some people suffer more than others? More personally, is it wise to wonder, why me? Is it wise to wonder about our faith, to play with questions or doubts? Is it wise to be circumspect about some of what we read in the Bible or circumspect about what some preachers preach to us? Is it wise to wonder? That's going to be the first half of the sermon. But the second way of looking at that phrase, wisdom in the wondering, is to ask what wisdom do we have to offer in the wondering of others or, or to the wondering of others? As people who have faith in God, what wisdom do we have when they're wondering about the circumstances that they find themselves in and, and all that life throws at them? So two ways we're going to look at this, uh, this phrase. So as we turn to Job, I want to say that the sermon is a little bit tentative. Um, Job is a famously enigmatic book. And if there are any scholars of Job out there, you can come and correct me afterwards. Because it's not always clear what Job is saying and what Job is about. And it is quite nuanced. And my uncertainty in this sermon kind of reflects that. So I'm offering thoughts today for you to ponder on, rather than making any sort of definitive uh, proclamation. Now, I'm sure you know the general story of Job. Um, just quickly, in case you don't, Job was a godly, upright, rich and successful man who, in a series of catastrophes, loses everything. So in the story of Job, his livestock are stolen, his servants put to the sword, his children are crushed when a house falls on them, and then he himself is afflicted with painful sores. I don't think we need to see Job as a literal figure. Rather, I think he's a literary figure. He's kind of a fictional archetype for all the innocent suffering there is in the world. Let me move that out of the way, I'm going to hit it otherwise. Uh, kind of, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's the person that is, is the, uh, the one that, that depicts all innocent suffering. And from chapter 3 right through to chapter 37 in Job, Job and four of his companions have a debate about what Job must have done wrong and what his response to suffering ought to be. It is chapter after chapter of Wondering. Wondering what causes suffering, wondering what is the meaning of suffering, and so wondering what suffering's remedy should be. And after Job has for many chapters pleaded with God to speak and answer his complaint, God eventually turns up in chapter 38. So I'm going to read um, extracts from three chapters, but starting in chapter 38, verse 1. Let me read it from the screen, then I will know where I am. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. 
Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While in the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Oops. Where do we go there? And then uh, jumping across to, uh, I hope, I've lost it. Oh, no, I didn't like that. What's it doing there? There we go. Uh, chapter 40, verse 8 to 14. God's still speaking. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Well, then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. And finally, this really isn't working, is it? In Job chapter 42, (laughs) can I just read it from here? Oh, there we go. Thank you. Job chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I find Job's words at the end of the book, those words there, devastating really, after all his argument and his complaint. Job has a a ring binder full of complaints. (laughs) He can list the things that he is angry with God about, that he believes is unfair in his life. But when God speaks, he perceives how small he is and how limited is his understanding. He's humbled into repentance when faced with the magnitude and the magnificence of God. And he realizes he has no right to question the Creator. So when you read the book of Job, and if you read the whole thing, if you've got a couple of hours, it would seem when you get to the end that Job is kind of being told off. It's as if he realises that all the arguments he's put forward and all the arguments of his friends, they are all foolishness, not wisdom. His friends keep telling him, you know, listen to my wisdom. But at the end of the book, it reveals the words to have been foolish. Why trouble an inscrutable God with small-minded wondering? Why not just be fatalistic and say, well, God is God, and what will be, will be. 
inshallah, as a Muslim would say. So is the message of Job then that it's not wise to wonder, but foolish to wonder? Well, look, in the, in the Jewish tradition, in the Hebrew scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament, there are five books that are collectively called wisdom literature. And those books are Proverbs, of course, and Ecclesiastes, and Psalms, and Song of Songs, and Job. Don't you think it would be a bit odd to describe the book of Job as wisdom literature if 83% of its chapters were, in fact, foolishness? And I think that what we are to conclude is that wisdom is found in the act of wondering. There is wisdom in the process of wondering. That is how we find it. Because, you know, most of the times when we're faced with a world that goes wrong or when we experience what is wrong in our own lives, we will never identify a, a cause or a reason. And we can rant and we can rage against God for what appears to be so unjust, but irritatingly, God never seems to have the need to justify himself. Um, he is truly, as, as I think Job realises, he is truly beyond us in this. As the Bible says, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And I think that peace in suffering or loss, I think it arrives only slowly. And ultimately, it rests on acceptance of what is and trust in the presence and goodness of God. But that takes a long time to arrive. I think there is wisdom in the journey, wisdom in the wondering. Because there's nothing worse than somebody preaching to you that you should simply accept a situation and you should just get over it when the person preaching that to you has not walked that path of suffering themselves. Put another way, it's no good somebody telling you to stop your wondering about God and his justice when they themselves have never had cause to wonder themselves. Wisdom only comes through the wondering. And that, I think, is why we have 35 chapters read them, <laughs> of wondering in the book of Job. Wisdom is found in the act of the wondering. Which I think is mighty fortunate because we all will at some point have cause to wonder. You know, Job's catastrophe may have been extreme, but it's written in this way in order that those who have lost their livelihood or job, those who have lost their home or their possessions, those who have lost their status or their reputation, those who have lost their health, those who have lost a family member, those who have lost the support of friends, those who have lost a sense of order and justice and rightness, all those who have cause to wonder are represented by Job. So his questioning of where God is in suffering and difficulty, it's kind of universal, isn't it? As I say, he's the archetype for us. He's the, the one that represents all our wondering. And you don't have to be old enough to have known loss for yourself to wonder. You just have to watch the news. In this week, a school in Thailand. In this week, 
a petrol station in Donegal. There's much to wonder about. So then there's something normal and natural and inevitable and I think necessary about our wondering. Because without our wondering, do we ever reach maturity? And without our wondering, are we ever capable of compassion? My mother died uh, 11 years ago. Uh, she was 77. She died of cancer. And I remember the day after my mother's funeral. You, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes, when you've got a funeral to get ready for, you've got a week or two weeks or whatever that's occupied by rushing around, to be honest, and trying to make the arrangements and talking to family and sending out letters and all the rest of it. It's a day after, perhaps, when, for me, the reality of it hits. And I remember sitting in a chair in my living room and I wept because I was close to my mother. Why did she have to leave? Why did she have to leave me on my own? And I found myself um, in an accusing mood. In my mind, I was kind of accusing my mother for having gone. I was kind of accusing God for having let her go. Now look, nobody needed to tell me that my questioning was irrational. <laughs> in one sense, it was ridiculous. I mean, everyone has to die, and in many parts of our world, to be honest, 77 is a good age to reach. And more than that, my mother, as it happened, died with dignity, thanks to the fabulous care of a hospice, which happened to be just down the road for where my parents lived. We were deeply blessed in those circumstances. And obviously it wasn't her fault that she died, and I think obviously it wasn't God's fault that she died. So the distant observer might say, well, what's all the fuss about? If you live long enough, it's guaranteed that you will have to experience the loss of a parent, so get over it. But we all know there is no wisdom in that answer, is there? We would say anyone who says, well, it happens to us all, get over it, we would say they are speaking in a callous manner. And society would condemn them for being callous. And those of you who have lost a loved one know this. No, you know, we wonder in these times. We, we wonder about life and about death and about God and about faith and about faithfulness and the faithfulness of God. We wonder about justice. And Job, I think, gives that wondering voice. He gives it voice. So what I'm trying to say is this, that the arguments of Job's friends are foolish because they suggest, well, he must have sinned in some way and they're wrong. And Job's own argument is foolish too because he demands God gives an account of himself as if he and God were equal sparring partners, which of course they're not. But despite the foolishness of the arguments, there remains wisdom in the wondering. Because that is how we mature. And that is how we grow. And that is how we learn compassion. And that is how we learn trust. And this then isn't just a comfort to us. I believe there's something missional in this. Because I think there are any number of people who are out there and they are wondering. And trite answers are not going to satisfy them. 
And the church should be a place of authenticity where trite answers are not given. I'm sure there are lots of churches where trite answers are given, and, well, good luck to them. But I think that people who do wonder are looking for an authentic community, a community that doesn't have it all taped, that doesn't define faith in neat little packages of immutable theology, but a community that has room for lament and questioning and for anger and frustration and yet still trusts, which is basically the words of the songs that we were singing this morning. There is wisdom in the wondering and there is something missional about that because it is authentic. What's the time? Are we, are we doing? Are we, we're going to go into the second reading. Is it all right if we carry on? Because there's a second part of this. That's Job. And then I, I want to turn to another type of Job. I'll explain why in a bit. I want us to go to, um, Paul, I'll leave you to press the button. Thank you. 2 Kings chapter 5. Deacons chapter 5, this is a story of Naaman. That's a good, good well-known story, so let, let me read this one. Now, Naaman was commander of the army and the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten sets of clothing. And the letter he took to the king of Israel read... With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. And Naaman's servants went to him and said, um, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more than when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, And now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. 
What a satisfying story that is. <laughs> it's a, just a great bit of storytelling. So here we've got foreign army commander Naaman. He's from Aram, which is, which is Syria. So he's kind of the, well, I would suggest he's the Syrian equivalent of Job. In as much as he's a great man. He's highly regarded, valiant soldier. Very curiously, it says actually at the start that he's blessed by God. God had given him victory, which is quite interesting. Anyway, he, the point is he has it all. Everything he touches turns to gold. But then he gets leprosy. And we all know what that meant in ancient society. It meant um, being shunned as a pariah. It meant uh, being distanced from everyone. No one would touch you. No one would come near you. You were an object of fear. So everything he had was threatened. Did he wonder, why me? What have I done? Have I sinned? Have I displeased the gods? And then we have a young girl, meaning I think a pre, pre, prepubescent girl, so 12, 13 years old at most. And in the midst of Naaman's wondering, this young girl brings a word of wisdom. If only my master, she says, would see the prophet who's in Samaria, she means Elisha, he would cure him of his leprosy. So we note that the relative position of Naaman to the young girl, Naaman is male, he's a warrior, he is of age, he's established, respected and powerful. The girl is a, is a slave, a possession, uh, trafficked into enforced exile, bound for a life of servitude, uh, vulnerable, dependent. But she's one of God's people. She's a girl with the knowledge of the power of God expressed through the prophet Elisha. And so into Naaman's wondering, she speaks this word of wisdom. She holds the key to Naaman's healing, and in fact to his conversion into belief in Yahweh, Israel's God. And I think the wisdom she offers is very simple. It is to seek God. If Naaman is to know healing, he has to seek God. In his case, literally seek he has to get his gifts and his horses and his chariots together. And he has to travel to Samaria. Then he has to go to the king and then he has to go and find uh, the prophet's house. And when he gets to the prophet's house, he's told to travel again to the River Jordan. That's about 15 miles away. And there is a, 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 this is a river that, that Naaman believed was a bit grubby and muddy and far inferior to all the wonderful rivers back in his home country. Always, you see, he's got to seek. He's got to go and look for the place of God's presence and blessing. And again, I think that's a bit like Job. For all the inadequacies of Job's arguments, the one thing he did was constantly desire the presence of God. Job, in his book, is always saying, if only God would speak to me, we could sort this out. If only God would, would meet me face to face and we could contend together, then I'd be happy. Job wants God's presence and eventually Job gets God's presence, though not perhaps in the way he anticipated and so, likewise, Naaman, he has to seek God for his healing, and eventually he gets God's healing, but not by the method he anticipated. So I think there is wisdom for those that are wondering. And that wisdom, in its broadest sense, is to seek God and to go after God, to desire his presence and his intervention, even in the face of apparent silence and inaction. Which means that even as we wonder for our own situation, we also have, I think, an evangelistic responsibility, a missional responsibility to offer wisdom to others in their wondering 
Our role is to be the young girl in the story. She is without influence or power or position, yet she holds the wisdom that her superiors did not. And isn't that us? I was about to say, do you remember? Of course you won't remember. But a while ago, I did preach a sermon here <laughs> on... I struggle to remember my sermons. Why should anyone else remember them? It was on that extraordinary verse in, in Ephesians 3, verse 10, which hopefully you've got on the screen. God's intention was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That is extraordinary. We, the church, are the holders of God's wisdom. I wonder whether that is especially true right now when, like Ephesians was written, we are the, the minority voice and the church is increasingly dismissed and overlooked by society. We are becoming more and more like the young girl, if you like, removed, mostly anyway, removed mostly from the position of security and that position of influence, yet the holders of wisdom. And that wisdom is to signpost others towards the presence of God and specifically towards the presence and work of Jesus. And it's almost as if we are constantly asking of others a question, have you thought about taking this matter to God? Can I tell you how I find my faith in Jesus enlightens my situation? And it may be, you know, maybe that as with Naaman, what Jesus will do, well, he might bring a literal healing, of course. But he may also bring the faith that allows a person to accept a situation, or the hope that through difficulty blessing may yet be restored, or an awareness of being loved despite everything, or belonging that they... Don't you love technology? How's that? Any good? Thank you, David. So it may be that they find hope in, in their blessing. It may be kind of awareness of being loved. It may just be they find reassurance that whatever comes, God is present with them. So this is the wisdom that we have to offer, we have to share. It isn't try answers, and it's not admonishment <laughs> to anyone for being slow to understand. Uh, sometimes the wisdom we offer is simply to embody the presence of Jesus, and just be with people in their wondering. If only my master would see the prophet in Samaria, says the girl, and we say, if only my friends, if only my spouse, if only my children, if only my work colleague would seek the presence of God. So there's wisdom in our wondering, because that is the way we gain trust and learn to have compassion. And we have wisdom to offer others in their wondering, which is to point towards God. So let me finish with another brief reflection on my mother. <clears throat> when my mother was in the hospice, which is down in Banbury, after she died, the hospice staff and, and um, others who knew her all remarked on how stoical my mother was in the face of her illness. Now, I get what they were saying, but I don't think they had it quite right. According to the dictionary, stoicism is the endurance of pain or hardship without the display of feelings and without complaint. 
Now, for sure, my mother happened to be of a fairly stoical disposition. I'm not saying that. But for the observant, or those with ears to listen, it's not just that my mother was stoical. It's, just, it's that she was faith-filled. And she had a trust in Jesus. And I genuinely believe, uh, well, I believe her because she said it, she was not afraid of dying. I think she had found wisdom. And in her simple entrusting to God of her life and her last days, she was a signpost to God and she embodied wisdom for others who were wondering. So that's our challenge. Not to be afraid of our own wondering. It's universal. We have to go through that. And there is wisdom in it. And may God lead us through it. But also to offer that embodiment of wisdom for others to point to our faith and to point to Jesus in whom we can trust despite all things. And I say all of that and I realise that I will not have answered your questions about your own situation. I won't have helped you with your whys and your anger, your frustration, your whatever it may be in the things that you are facing. I'm not resolving your wondering. I'm just saying that God is with you in it. And I've been told that I need to leave you with a couple of questions. Um, I think you, maybe you'll look at these next week. So I think hopefully that they're on the, on the screen. Or, yeah. So these are some of the things you might have to ponder on this week. When for you has a period of wondering or questioning led to a deepening of your understanding of God? And I say that because I know that some of you will end up with a different view of God than before you wondered. So where has a period of wondering left you with a different understanding of God? And the second question is, for whom might Jesus be asking you to embody wisdom? In words, in what you say, I think I'd want to add, or just in your being with them. For whom might Jesus be asking you to embody wisdom? So there's a couple of questions to leave you with. Um, it's a tentative sermon, as I say. I'll kind of leave it with you and uh, for you to think about and uh, discuss and get back to me if you wish. Thank you. Thank you. And lots to ponder on. And Mary's going to um, come up and, 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 and pray.